The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Well, Paul, we're back. Stuart's not here, but uh, the great Justin Burke is with us. This is the Curbsiders. This is yet another episode on COVID. Tonight, it's more, it's a little bit of clinical, but mostly it's just us like kind of commiserating and talking about the status of things right now with a bunch of people that know way more than we do. Um, But Paul, can you tell people, what do we really do on this show? Sure. Other than being reassured that smarter people than us are actually out there taking care of patients, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. And the great Dr. Burke has put together just a a cast of experts and and charming individuals to actually talk about their experiences in the front line. So, Justin, why don't you tell us about who we're talking to? Yeah, we have some great guests today. Uh, They're all honestly kind of personal heroes of mine, some that I've gotten to work with. Um, Going through the line, Dr. Francisco Alvarez is a brilliant colleague who I did residency with at Hopkins. He's a general internist and hospitalist at UCSF, where they have an open ICU and are treating um, patients in the ICU care. He's a co-author on one of the recent papers describing some of the first COVID cases in the United States, so has become overnight kind of an expert in uh, experiences of treating these patients. Dr. Carolina Maciach is an infectious disease fellow at the University of Washington, an institution that's kind of at the center of this epidemic. And she too has truly just become an expert, just surrounded by um, a lot of the conversations and kind of academic culture uh, of being in an infectious disease uh, uh, center uh, around this epidemic. Dr. David Fafaro is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Columbia University Medical Center in New York City. He is an Osler residency alum and was also an assistant chief of service, which is the Hopkins equivalent of chief residents, but they spend over 300 days on service. They're just brilliant. He is someone yeah. who taught me a lot. Unbelievable. Those guys are uh, dedicated to the field of internal medicine. Um, and he is a big Curbsiders fan. We loved having him. He was recently featured as an expert in the cardiac complication of COVID episode on the podcast Cardio Nerds. Um, so definitely worth checking out. 300 days? It's ridiculous. Those guys are there all day, all night. They are experts constantly teaching some of the best educators in the United States. They're, Sorry, they're carry on. Uh, incredible. He's, he's an incredible guy. We're really fortunate to have him. Dr. Nick Mark is an intensivist in Seattle, Washington, and he has uh, created one of these uh, viral cheat sheets that's really gone viral on Twitter. So he's an incredible resource that we got to have. Um, he is the creator of a website, onepagericu.com, where he's developing these one-page cheat sheets on ICU care. But he has uh, created this a lot of information about the pathophysiology treatment and uh, care of these COVID ICU patients that has really gone to help out a lot of institutions that are taking care of these patients. So we're privileged to have all these people on the show, uh, uh, really excited to hear their narratives and kind of what it's like to be treating on the front lines as some of us as generalists are going to be uh, treating these patients uh, almost inevitably in the near future. Yeah, Justin, you know, your, your enthusiasm about this topic is infectious. No. <laughs> That. No, no. Come on, man. What are you doing? We were, <laughs> we were doing so great. And, uh, um, and I now... think Stuart incepted me. So I, even, <laughs> I even sidestepped the viral. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Start. That one was for me, guys. Okay. So we have a big crew recording here. 
Justin, where do you want us to start? Well, I'll let you ask the first question. Great. So uh, thank you guys for joining us. You know, um, you all have a lot of experience in kind of being on the front lines. So Francisco, can we start with you? Um, can you kind of walk us through the process and your thought process leading up to and then caring for your first COVID patients? What are your thoughts and how did the uh, Cashlack brands where you're located uh, uh, respond? Yeah, you know, I was I was reflecting on this the other day, actually. And, you know, I think uh, you don't really realize, you don't really know what's going on until after the fact. I think like a lot of physicians have experienced that, like maybe in a code or a procedure, like being in a flow state or in the zone. So, you know, it happened really all of a sudden. I was on service, not really focusing on coronavirus. You know, I was focusing on my patients uh, day to day. And I just woke up to an email one day essentially saying, hey, uh, we have a couple of patients uh, with confirmed coronavirus uh, being sent to us from the Department of Health. Uh, and they're coming to you, so uh, get ready. Uh, and then from there, it was just kind of a blur going forward, you know, and it's kind of sunk in over the course of the day when, you know, the, the head of hospital infection control met me in person to discuss, like, the PPE situation and, you know, a flurry of emails and phone calls with the CDC and local uh, Department of Health officials. And, at, you know, at one point, I'm, like, presenting essentially the cases to a conference call with like, you know, dozens of, of uh, these officials, I felt like I was like back in intern year, uh, you know, presenting in front of uh, in front of my team. Um, but kind of moving forward, I think the big things that I was focusing on, um, you know, first of all, was like getting staff buy in, like, especially like the nurses, other staff that were in the patient's room, sometimes much more often than I was, uh, and making sure that they were feeling supported. Um, you know, luckily for everyone involved, the first few cases we had were relatively mild disease. Uh, so a lot of it was a lot of coordination of care, conference calls with CDC officials, Department of Health officials, um, talking about what, you know, discharge from the hospital would look like, what quarantine would look like. Um, and then, you know, the other thing I'll say about it is that uh, getting the patients really early, like we're talking late January, early February, um, really allowed uh, Cashlack to start thinking about putting systems in place uh, about handling a possible epidemic situation. And so looking at where we are now, although the situation has definitely evolved significantly since then, you know, I'm really glad that our division and our hospital administration had the foresight to begin thinking about a lot of these issues at that time. So how much of that was protocolized before you started taking care of these patients? And how much of that, I'm trying to think of the nice way of saying you were the pioneer with the arrows in the back, like how, how much of that was actually determined by the care that you took of these patients versus how much was set up in advance of meeting them? Zero was set up in advance. It, I mean, we, we weren't... Uh, <laughs> Uh, we weren't uh, expecting them to be sure until they arrived. Um, but so, you know, for the first couple of patients, it was really setting things up as we went. Um, but we were, you know, we had the protocol structure in place of our regular clinical care team. And then we just had to make adjustments, you know, as time went on for a particular, um, you know, infection control and things like that. Great. And so, and Carolina, for, from your perspective, as, as an infectious disease fellow in a place that's kind of the epicenter, um, what's been going on with you? What's it like to be a consultant on um, when this is going on? So there's two major things that I wanted to emphasize about our ID community. And the first is um, how proud I am of our University of Washington and regional and national infectious disease communities in terms of coming together and um, fighting this epidemic. So really the main, the main emotion that I was having during the 
early and now uh, evolving stages of the epidemic were a real sense of pride of belonging within this community that's approaching the epidemic with knowledge, with empathy, and with calmness uh, due to uh, knowledge that we have resources to deploy and the right people to be deploying them. Um, so in the epicenter, one of the epicenters of the storm, there was this sense of calm that our leadership is doing the right things and that we were at the early stages of detecting um, you know, community spread um, and treating some of the, of the first patients, um, but that we have the right resources to deploy. So a very strange sense, I think, of calm in the middle of the storm. And, you know, I think as uh, consulting teams, we have the um, the luxury of being um, one or two steps removed from our colleagues who are really in those frontline trenches, our EMS staff, our emergency department teams, and our ICU teams, our nursing teams on the floors on our COVID, now COVID ward. And we actually have that luxury of being uh, only called to consult as needed as a trainee and as a fellow. Again, I have the feeling of um, being supported by our amazing community of researchers and clinicians. Um, and I think we've been sheltered in a way from, um, again, that front line of caring for COVID patients and making decisions about the treatment of their COVID disease. It's been a very collaborative process. Questions about treatment of COVID patients um, are not taken, you know, it's not kind of a one-off consult question. They're made by groups of experts coming together and reviewing um, all of the latest data. There's guidelines. It's been, uh, it's being, it's becoming protocolized and those protocols are made with a great deal of care. Um, so in fact, uh, when a patient is admitted and has COVID disease, um, the infectious disease consult teams are not called upon to determine uh, management of treatment for that patient routinely. Um, we are consulted on these patients um, in order to care for some of their other related conditions. Um, sometimes we're called upon about uh, testing decisions. Um, and I think very early on, the ID community has realized that this epidemic is going to overwhelm us if we don't take very drastic action in terms of restructuring how we work. So the ID consult teams, we continue to see the same volumes of you know, MRSA, bacteremia, um, there's still staffs and streps and uh, transplant patients coming in ill. Um, and we that that volume has been has always been very great. Consulting on COVID patients is a still remains a small part of what we do, whereas participating intellectually uh, in the life of our uh, fellowship program of our specialty department, we participate kind of in that way. But we are a bit removed from the day to day of the care of the COVID patients. I just wanted to make one comment and then uh, kind of like a follow-up question. So the, I, I love the point that the emergency medicine docs and the nurses are are really a lot on the front line and that you're, as a consultant, you're a little bit protected from, because I just remember even as a, a hospitalist, seeing the nurses, like they're going into the room like 10 times a day or, you know, it's like, it's like, it's like way, way more than, than we have to go in the room, which might be once or twice a day as the physician on the case. So I, I love that point. And then the other thing that 
it just seems like, um, I'm not sure if we're saying specifically your institution, but it seems like certain institutions in Cashlack West had a really great response to this. And I can't imagine they knew for sure it was coming. And then there's other places throughout the country where they, they had more notice because of what was happening out West, but don't seem as prepared. So what do you think, like, how did that happen? Was it just like a great team of people? Did you just get lucky, right place, right time? Like, how did you have such a, like, what seems to be organized response to this chaotic situation? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a couple of elements to it. Um, I think we had an early warning um, because I have to give uh, so much credit to the incredible Seattle flu study led by um, the indomitable um, Helen Chu, as well as uh, Dr. Trevor Bedford, um, they and the entire their entire team. So they had been collecting data on the flu in um, the area that includes Cashlack West. They had been noticing um, patterns that were, you know, indicating um, the spread of various respiratory viruses. That study collected data was specifically designed to collect data on the flu, but as part of the consent study, they had consented participants for collection of data on any other pathogens, viral or otherwise, that they may be carrying. As news spread about the viral um, the viral epidemic in China, the team of that study did as it was their right to do based on their protocol. They also looked for uh, SARS-CoV-2 in the data sets that they had, and lo and behold, they found it. There's a really great New York Times story that outlines how they were able to take that data um, and through various challenges end up warning the country that SARS-CoV-2 is spreading in the American public. I think because those scientists are members of our community, we were able to embrace that data very early on and treat this incredibly seriously, appreciate it for what it is, being a virus with deadly potential and community spread, and prepare mentally and physically uh, in terms of getting the staff and the structures and the stuff ready to start taking care of these patients. So lots of credit to the Seattle Flu Study, to our colleagues who so bravely, they made some very tough decisions and had a little bit of administrative challenges from the federal level, um, but that they really stood up and, um, and felt this moral imperative to warn the nation that this was coming. So again, very, very proud of our department. Um, the second thing is that um, the epidemic did seem to start to hit at, unfortunately, at uh, some of our area nursing homes. And uh, one of our regional hospitals was um, hit very, very hard. So unfortunately, through their difficult experience, I think our Cashlack West hospitals were able to start preparing as well because the flow of patients to our hospitals was just a little bit delayed. But I think, again, the lesson is um, learning from other institutions that are learning from their experiences, whether those are hospitals in China, whether they're in Italy, or whether they're just a couple at a regional hospital a couple of miles away and heeding that and taking action. That's great. Um, and so to, to Dave Fafaro, you know, Carolina mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the frontline people are, are the EM docs in, in the ICU and you as a critical care fellow, um, actually, I remember we had a great grand round from an ID doc who 
got up there and basically said, you know, I, ID, we can do so much, but really this is a, this is a disease of critical care medicine. Um, how has this affected you in the ICU? How has this affected your planning? How has, what are the current challenges going on in your ICU? Can you talk about your experience? A bit? Yeah, sure. So, um, COVID has uh, affected the ICU, I think, a lot, as you would expect, and a lot of the same ways that it's affecting the entire hospital system. Uh, every day, we're having increasing number of patients in the hospital uh, coming in with COVID, getting admitted, and then increasing numbers of them are needing the ventilator and higher percentages than we're used to seeing with respiratory viruses or infections, uh, especially in this time of year. Uh, this is compounded by the fact that the threshold to intubate them has been a bit lower, both because we've seen a, a progressive, rapidly progressive hypoxemic respiratory failure um, with a lot less lag time and a lot less pausing than we see, say, with the flu, where sometimes people can hang out on non-invasive or high flow for some amount of time. These people are getting sick pretty fast. Uh, and then secondly, with those other types of methods of support, there's increasing issues of aerosolization of the virus and then increasing issues of spread and uh, containment. And so the threshold to intubate has been lower and the ICUs have been fuller with that. And I think to remember, um, and Carolina sort of touched on this, is you know these ICUs are full pretty much every day of the year, even when there's not COVID. So we're still having GI bleeds and sepsis and patients who have, are immunosuppressed coming in for all those issues. And a lot of times, even we've been finding patients come in for one of those issues and then are also COVID positive. So it's been leading to certainly a lot of uh, challenges with uh, the bandwidth that we have in the ICUs and a lot of challenges sort of in triage and how we put get everybody into the level of care that they need to get to. Um, the other challenges I'd say seen in the ICU is, you know, some of the, just about the amount of sick patients coming in. Um, and then there's the issue of sort of protecting everybody who's working there. So there's been lots of reporting going on about the PPE. Um, and you know, that's also just in the flow of the day is making sure that you actually know how to put on the PPE, that everybody's doing things appropriately, that even though these patients are in rooms that may be airborne, that they're still getting all the care that they need and kind of planning ahead as we go ahead and address that. Um, so each of these has raised some challenges as they go through. I will say the ICU is sort of a place of controlled chaos at baseline. So there are definitely times in the day when even if there are a number of COVID patients, it just feels like good routine ICU care as usual, rounding, going in, getting the things you need to get done for those patients. And in a lot of ways, that's a really good thing because that means that those patients are getting the right type of care that they need to. Um, and it hasn't reached a level yet where things are getting so hectic that, you know, corners are being cut or anything like that, which I, which is fantastic. And I, and I hope and expect that it will remain that way. Um, in terms of the preparations, I can't I can't talk entirely in specifics. What I can say is that there's definitely efforts to cohort the patients. You know, patient people being tested, people that have been confirmed, people that are confirmed and need ventilators, um, and then there's just been this huge uh, surge of collaboration. So. Carolina mentioned some of the ways things are flowing there. Uh, we've had a lot of involvement with ID in each case and kind of deciding what therapies we're going to do for each patient. Um, all of our other ICUs, neuro ICU, surgical ICU, CCU, are everybody's pitching in uh, and taking care of patients and then uh, contacting the medical intensivists when they need them. And it's just been pretty incredible to see how the preparation is being done and who and, and all the things people are coming up with to help with this. So for example, the other day in the ICU, 
at uh, like starting at midnight, the facilities people were in a room converting more rooms into negative airborne and just with engineers in there figuring out how to do that. And then we're able to get another room or two up and running pretty quick, which is, you know, that's the type of incredible collaboration that people have been uh, contributing to take care of everyone. So I'm going to throw it to Nick now. That was incredibly helpful. But Nick, also an intensivist, also in the ICU, I feel like for me, one of the most emotionally exhausting things about it, and I don't even really take care of these patients all that much, is just how much everything is a moving target and how much what we know evolves. And so what PPE was appropriate one day is not the next. And what comorbidities existed one day actually turned out to not be as important as other ones the next day. And even some of the treatment decisions seem to be evolving just almost on a daily basis. So how, how are you making, this will be an easy question for you, how are you making these tough decisions with so little evidence or with evidence that keeps kind of moving around on you? So I think, I think that we deal with uncertainty a lot in the ICU. We often see sick patients who are undifferentiated, whether it's undifferentiated shock or unclear what's, what's causing their particular illness. We're accustomed to treating that. And when we talk about COVID being a new disease, it is. It's a, it's a novel virus. But the serious illness that it causes, acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, is very well known to us. This is something that we've made great strides in treating over the last few decades. And so, you know, while on one hand, this is totally new, on the other hand, there's a lot of familiarity here. A lot of the maneuvers that we're comfortable doing, like intubating people under controlled and safe conditions, um, placing them on lung protective ventilation, using um, inhaled prostacyclins, using neuromuscular blockers, proning people early, these strategies work. And they, can, they work in COVID just like they work in uh, ARDS of other causes. That said, you know, there, there are a lot of challenges when you don't know what you're dealing with. And you mentioned some of the big ones. There's the personal safety aspect of it, where we're being told different things at different times. Um, and you have to think not just about what's right for the patient, but what's right for, for me and my team and potentially for my family. That's a new dimension to this. There's also the dimension of, um, you know, worrying about, worrying about how will we um, weather this pandemic, because it's not just about um, one day getting taking care of one patient, but making sure that we're learning from that patient so we can take better care of the next patient and the next 10 patients. Yeah. And so, and with a lot of this um, disseminating of the information, Nick, I know you have put together this kind of uh, one page ICU cheat sheet that's essentially gone viral on Twitter of kind of the information that you've collected um, uh, uh, with your experience. Uh, what made you what led you to kind of making this this helpful guide, and what was the impetus for it? So I, I think we're all internists here. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. This is this is an internal medicine podcast, so it's it's safe company to say this that you know, whoa, 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 whoa. this is the internal medicine podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the internal the medicine, internal medicine podcast. That's right. So I think I think I'm in safe company to to out myself as a nerd and somebody who likes to figure things out and understand how they work. And I feel you know relatively uncomfortable, relatively powerless when I don't know about something. And so one of the coping strategies that I use personally is to just read everything I can and write down what I can. And my way of processing it is to distill that down, you know, from many pages to one page. Um, I was working in the ICU one night. I had distilled my notes down to one page, snapped a photograph of it, shared it on Twitter, uh, went home, went to sleep, woke up, it was viral, decided to type it up. And share that. That went that went even more viral. And so for the last week, I've just been trying to iterate on this as new data becomes available with feedback of so many people in the community. Um, you know, for for me, I as a medical student, as a resident, as a fellow, 
I always took a lot of solace in knowing that I had my little medicine pocketbook, you know, this guy, um, in my white coat pocket or not white coat pocket as the case may be. Um, you know, the, the idea that the answers were there. And so kind of my intent was to create uh, a one page piece of paper that could be sort of stick it in your, stick it in your scrub pants, stick it in your green book, red book, whatever color it is these days. Um, and then you have the answers and you have that sense of power. I was just going to say, thanks, Nick, for making that. It's been immensely helpful. And also it is one of these challenges too, is just how much information is coming out and how much of it is coming in different sources. You know, the published literature has been great, but then Twitter has also been equally, you know, useful tool for disseminating some of the things that are going on, but, but filtering through it is, has been, you know, a challenge. So stuff like the tool you made has been, has been fantastic. Thanks. Can, can I just ask a general question, uh, Francisco, maybe I'll throw this to you since you're, you, you also work as a hospitalist. Have you just been feeling like just seeing, seeing all the stories and seeing the COVID emails pile up in your inboxes? Are you just getting like this sense of overwhelm and almost just like tired of reading about it every single day? I, I haven't gotten there yet, uh, but yeah, certainly, you know, it's certainly a lot. I've heard from certain institutions that, uh, you know, they try to kind of streamline the amount of email overload. I think, you know, here at Cashlack West, we could uh, continue to improve on that. Uh, but I do, you know, kind of talking about what uh, Dave Perfar was talking about just now, it's been really incredible to see the amount of data that's gone out and how quickly uh, around non um you know, non-traditional uh, methods of dissemination, like not papers, essentially, um, you know, through social media and stuff. You know, we had the case, I think this was good. Uh, you know, we, uh, we were getting a, a paper ready for, you know, talking about the first cases of COVID in the United States. And basically, by the time it was ready to be published, all the data that was in it was already, you know, public knowledge through uh, kind of social media and such. Um, at the same time, there's a lot of disinformation or misinformation, you know, that kind of can go around. And so I think teasing that apart is a real challenge. But it's still, you know, to me, it's still interesting to kind of go through everything and uh, and see what, you know, what the latest information, what the latest data is showing. Twitter's a nightmare, man. I don't know about <laughs> your guys' feeds, but like I've been too lazy yeah. to organize. And I just, now, you know, it's it's been a mix of medicine and lefty politics and cat pictures. And now whenever, <laughs> like, whenever a cat shows up, I, I like a palpable sense of relief washes over me like, oh, thank God. Like I just, I'm so, I can't stop scrolling, but, yeah. um, but it's just the pauses are few and far between anymore. Yeah. Paul, Paul, we were debating the other day about if we should, how much we should convert the show to COVID coverage. And Paul's like, I think eventually people are just going to be begging us to do a hypertension yeah. episode. Just like, <laughs> just, just give to, me some kidney stones. For, God, I beg you. COVID break. Yeah. Yeah. And so Francisco, as kind of a generalist, as a, a core hospitalist right now, um, what role do you see as a generalist? Like, are you, are you brushing up on like vent management? Like, is this something that you anticipate hospitalists are going to have to step up and be performing some critical care? Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think simply from the numbers perspective, I think the role of the generalist really starts to become very clear. You know, I think in a pandemic situation, uh, and, you know, Carolina was talking about this earlier, you know, the, the subspecialist is going to, uh, you know, we can't, we can't rely on just our subspecialist workforce. So I think we really, uh, just in terms of uh, workforce numbers, we really need to depend on our uh, generalists, both in the outpatient and inpatient setting. Um, you know, and I think also, you know, we know statistically that the, you know, the majority of patients are going to have mild or moderate disease. And so, you know, uh, not all of them will necessarily be in the ICU. And so while the ICU, 
uh, kind of severe ARDS patients are very exciting uh, pathophysiologically, you know, I think a lot of the role for generalists and what, you know, our division at uh, Cashback West is really focused on uh, is a lot of operations management, uh, you know, uh, and that's, you know, really creating systems to optimize how the hospital, how clinics, how the healthcare system overall uh, can run smoothly, which I think is, you know, you know, the, the hospital healthcare utilization management uh, aspect of the pandemic is a very significant uh, uh, constraint here. Um, you know, and so, you know, one thing is working very closely with our colleagues in the ED and the ICU. You know, one thing is, you know, helping to clear patients from the ED in a, an efficient and effective manner, make, making sure that we know, you know, figuring out uh, who needs to be admitted, who can be sent home with monitoring, helping to unburden the EDs that are, you know, potentially going to get very slammed. Um, and then the other aspect is having a very clear, uh, clear path of communication with our critical care colleagues and helping with escalation and de-escalation of care in a very efficient manner. Um, you know, that, so I think that that's a, a big area of focus for us as, uh, as generalists and as hospitalists is really owning that hospital operations management role. As, part, as far as like, uh, you know, particular uh, management of, you know, ventilators and stuff. So at Cashback West, we actually have an open ICU model. So even before this, I have been, uh, you know, we have a critical care team that does the heavy lifting of ventilator management, but I have been brushing up on my ventilator management on the side. But yeah, I mean, I've, I heard anecdotally of some institutions where the hospitalists were getting uh, trained on intubation. We aren't quite there in Cashlack West, but I guess, you know, as the pandemic continues, we'll have to see how, you know, it's, I think we're on a new uncharted territory. And so we'll have to see how this role evolves. I just see Paul Williams shaking his head in terror, as you <laughs> mentioned, like hospitals being trained in intub- intubation. I agree, Paul. No, thank you. That's uh, I'm barely a hospitalist. Like I have an outpatient <laughs> medicine doctor. Give me a swollen knee. I'm all over it, man. But yeah, Yeesh. you'll rise to the occasion, Paul. I have no doubt. <laughs> yeah, you got this. You, you do this yeah. in residency. Oh, thanks, guys. Can we spend the rest of the episode doing this? Because this helps out a lot. <laughs> yeah, this episode is just going to be how to intubate. Uh, yeah. um, and so it's really in the middle there. Yeah, yeah. Sounds yeah. yeah. like yeah. you need a break for a, for a cat video. <laughs> yeah, for cat video yeah. break. Um, and, and so Carolina, as someone in the infectious disease world, uh, how is this affecting the vulnerable populations that are often, um, you know, that are often affected by infectious diseases? How does this affect the vulnerable populations? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, the patients that we stay kind of stay up all night, uh, worrying about. So, um, the COVID-19 disease, as many diseases do, um, affect some of our most vulnerable, you know, like, like in all cases, some of our most vulnerable populations um, can be dispor- disproportionately affected in some different ways, I think, than we're usually used to. For example, um, uh, neonates, babies, children um, are, seem not to be affected, um, at least not often, however, are chronically ill, um, elderly, um, are for them, this is a truly deadly disease. One of the most emotional moments of this early phase of the epidemic for me was um, was being witness to indirectly to a comment made by um, someone who had been affected, who said, "This feels like the AIDS epidemic all over again," um, which really, you know, gave me pause in terms of I think at a time when all of us have been busy operationally in terms of um, learning about how our hospital operations were changing and how, and learning everything we could about the pathophysiology and science and um, uh, pharmaceuticals that could be used um, that really helped to rehumanize it. Um, You know, these uh, patients whom we were 
essentially caring for um, remotely, you know, as part of our operations, um, a little aside as part of our operations, uh, our many of our consults became window consults. We would come to the patient's unit, we would speak with their intensive care team um, or their ward team. We would communicate with the patient through the window. Um, if they were uh, not intubated, we would talk to them through the phone. Um, and, you know, that loses a little bit of the humanity, but that really kind of, that statement really jolted me into um, the, uh, the very human impact and the fear that is in um, the entire community, but the vulnerable uh, populations most of all. Um, in terms of patients who are, you know, I think a lot has been said and um, maybe some of the, in the intensivists will also continue to chime in about uh, dangers to patients with chronic lung disease and chronic heart disease. And I think we also have to think about what's happening to our chronically ill or disabled patients um, who are indirectly affected, so even those who do not have the disease, um, for whom it's harder to get routine care, the routine care that's being delayed by the epidemic. Um, as a, uh, just a little story from our ID clinic, um, in one of our last clinics, because unfortunately our clinics are also being kind of um, shut down or moved online as much as possible, um, but during one of our last inpatient clinics, in one of the offices that we share with another specialty, we just overheard them kind of joking about how their patients were not showing up, but how impressed they were that the ID patients just kept on showing up. <laughs> we have a lot of um, chronic patients who come to ID clinic and uh, for the chronic care of their infections or their immunodeficiencies to protect themselves against infections. So for them, this is just the way that we are living and protecting each other there is the way that they have been living. So they continue to come to ID clinic, they continue to take precautions, um, and it just realized how uh, strong they are and uh, how, how impressed I am and inspired I am by them and the way that they live their life and the uh, courage that they show every day. The danger, though, of being out in the world where SARS-CoV-2 is spreading, um, I do, again, I worry a lot about our disabled patients and their ability to get the routine care that they need. And another note, um, one element that um, I think has probably not gotten enough um, traction in um, the press or in the way that we think about it is how it affects our transplant population. We do see it, you know, it's a very large share of the transplant population um, who are already immunocompromised um, and who um, I think the impact of a virus about which we are just learning and its impact on uh, the transplant programs um, is actually, I think, a huge and very hidden part of um, a hidden part of the way that our medical system works and the impact of, again, the impact of the epidemic. Um, and then, you know, other chronic diseases. So patients who go to dialysis three times a week and are always putting themselves at risk. This is going to be, this is a disease of everyone, and it's particularly a disease of the most vulnerable. It's, I love that point, and I, I think the populations that I worry about, thinking about the unintended consequences of protecting ourselves and each other, are patients who are living with substance use disorder and the potential disruption to uh, medication-assisted therapy. I mean, there's contingency plans and there's, there's protocols in place, but it's just still, I can see people going out that medica without medications because we're pushing for an outpatient or sort of not, not seeing people in the office. And then the multi-morbid patients, too, that we're just really encouraging to stay home. I do worry there's going to be a subset of the population who are just so sick at baseline. We're like, please don't come in. And we're missing a chance to pick up on acute exacerbation of diseases or other kind of risk factors. So I think there's 
I think what we're doing is right. And I think what we're doing is necessary. But I also think there's gonna be people who are also adversely affected, not necessarily because of exposure to COVID, but because of the disruption in the healthcare system at large. Absolutely, Paul. I mean, I also hope that there's a silver lining to it and that some of the ways in which we're making care more nimble, some of the rapid evolution that has been able to um, to flourish in the face of um, decreased regulations or uh, creative thinking um, or you know, even the use of telemedicine, um, I hope that on the flip side of that, some of these um, vulnerable populations will be able to access care um, perhaps in a better way for them in the future. And I'd like to add in, you know, talking about, you know, these vulnerable populations. Also, when we go, when we're looking at the uh, large level public health response, you know, there's been, uh, you know, a lot of uh, news coverage about, you know, the shelter in place that was uh, put in California and now in in New York. And, you know, California for many years has been uh, dealing with a large homeless population. Of course, that's not something unique to uh, to California. Um, And so, you know, I think that a, there's a lot of uh, maybe unrecognized chronic disease in, uh, in a lot of uh, members of the homeless population, you know, so, certainly a lot of comorbidity with, you know, as you were mentioning, uh, substance use disorders. But, you know, if, if they don't even have a place to shelter in place, it, it becomes so, uh, it spreads into a whole, you know, public sphere of, you know, is it this population that is that is at risk themselves and at risk of, uh, of continuing the disease in, in society as a whole. So I think it's something that as a medical profession, we really need to be uh, thinking a lot more proactively about. Yeah, it's a great insight. Uh, yeah, I'm curious too if there's innovations that kind of wind up sticking uh, um, in helping treating these populations after all this COVID uh, uh, settles out. Um, in addressing a lot of the generalists that are part of our audience, um, David, I'd like to go to you and then and then maybe Nick to get your guys' insights. And what guidance uh, can you give to the general internist listener? And how should these providers be thinking about taking care of these patients? Yeah, I think as uh, generalists are getting prepared, and especially people who haven't yet taken care of a COVID patient, I kind of think of two main categories that they should start prepping themselves on. And the first is, you know, that these principles are excellent patient care, and then protecting yourself. And so kind of starting with uh, protecting yourself, things to start boning up on is how to actually don and doff PPE appropriately. Uh, I'm sure everyone else on this podcast always had perfect PPE technique, but I uh, had certainly let it slide sometimes, you know, walking into a room, holding a mask over (laughs) you or uh, pulling my sleeves of my gown up. But now all of that is, you know, it always is important and it's absolutely essential now. So relearning all of that and making sure you're up to date on it, I think is really important. I have never felt felt so guilty about lying about tasting the sucrose during my N95 mask yeah, yeah. test than ever. And like, <laughs> yeah. I now shaved my beard. I'm like on board. I'm trying to. Yeah, yeah you're definitely I'm not trying the to follow your one. advice, Dave. Yeah. The CDC has that 18 minute video on donning and doffing, which is just it's. Yeah, there's a lot of places to mess up. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other one thing I, you know, to start thinking about is the flow of your day and flow of taking care of patients. This is one thing we've seen in the ICU is you're trying to minimize contact while maintaining excellent care. And so, you know, if you're about to go into the room, you have to stop, go, you know, you should call the nurse, see if he or she needs you to do anything. And if they ask you to change a pump, that might not be something you know how to do, but spend an extra two minutes to learn how to do it so that you can go in and minimize them going into the room again. And sort of having that thought process and building that into the workflow, um, I think it will be really important. 
Um, and then one, the last thing in protecting yourself is knowing you, up about the aerosolizing procedures. So this is, as people have been mentioning, this is evolving. It's what we need to do to protect ourselves. But some things we've started to learn have increased the risk that the virus can uh, be spread. And so things like high flow nasal cannula, really uh, non-invasive positive pressure, like BiPAP even more so. Um, and even nebulizers, most aerosolized, most nebulizers we're using are aerosolizing the virus. So knowing that in advance so that you can, you know, give the appropriate amount of time before going in, uh, I think is all really important. Uh, when you when you said that, it, it reminded me of there was a, an infographic. I think the BMJ or the Lancet, one of our curbsiders, Kate, who works in UK, sent it out to us, and they had this like in their workflow for COVID was putting a patient in a room, and before you even go in there, you would actually do just try to do a phone call with the patient, even though they're on the other side of the wall. So I'm just wondering if that's being used in the in the ICU. Uh, it it seems like a practical thing, just rather than put the whole thing on. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't done that yet. I had mostly intubated patients where I'm talking to them, but I would definitely take advantage of that if I could, for sure. And for the generalist, in terms of how to take care of patients, uh, I think a few things to keep in mind, and, and we're all actively learning about these patients, but one is understanding the disease course that we're seeing as people are getting sicker. So these patients are getting rapidly, progressively hypoxemic. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of time to try uh methods short of intubation. Certainly you can still try high flow and, and non-invasive if it's available, but they, when they've been getting sick, they've been getting sick quickly. And then when they have been really sick, we've seen a lot of people with hypoxemia and, and not as stiff lungs. So less hypercapnia, there, um, less issues on the ventilator. And you know, hopefully all hospitals will be at the place where there's uh, medical intensivists being able to help with the ventilator, but you know it may come to a hospitalist managing a ventilator. And I know some places even have open ICUs. And so um, one thing that we've seen is just using a lot of PEEP has been very helpful for these patients. And I think anything more than that, you're going to be calling people to help you out, but having some basic physiology of it uh, will be important. And then the last thing is knowing your hospital's plan for what to do when you need more help. So I know, for example, for us, um, even though we often, we normally intubate, we're trying to do first pass success, fewest people in the room. So the most senior anesthesiologist available on a special team is doing the intubations. So I know what that number is, how to call them, how to get them there quickly uh, when I need them, that, that type of thing. Oh, good. So it's not Paul Williams in there. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, if they're not available, I'll call you. Listen, but, uh, put me in coach. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so Dave, Dave, I think those are some great points. I, I totally agree. I, I think of it as sort of a four-step hierarchy. Uh, first and foremost, protect yourself, protect your team. Second, focus on good proven ICU care. So the things that we know how to do well that have good evidence behind them. Third, think about clinical trial enrollment. Uh, that way, uh, if we're trying disease-specific interventions, at least the public in general can learn from those. And fourth, remember compassion. You know, this is a very isolating disease. Think about what it's like to be a patient who has COVID, who's in a room where their family can't visit because isolation precautions have been changed to preclude visitors. Um, everybody who comes in, comes in wearing this scary equipment. They want to spend as little time with you as possible. They're calling you on the phone. If you're in the room, you're already exposed. You're already at risk, especially if you're doing intubating procedures like some of us are. Um, you if you're in the room, you might as well spend an extra minute or two, put your hand on them, say a few words, hold their hand, you know, do that little bit extra because it will go a long way 
in a disease like this where people are already so afraid and already so isolated. One other point I want to make about the, um, the hospitalist or internist being drafted to the ICU. So um, this is a team sport. There, you know, us critical care docs love to talk about pulmonary physiology, you know, if you'll let us, but we also are here to help and there's lots of resources available to do that. Um, I've been in touch with a lot of my residency classmates and just given out my phone number, like, Hey, middle of the night, if you're managing somebody in the ICU and you're stuck, page me, call me, you know, I'm happy to give you a curbside consult like that. And can you, for our listeners, go ahead and give us your cell phone number? That'd be, that'd be... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> one one other thing that I had to follow it's five, up. Five, five, five. <laughs> one other thing I had to follow up on Dave's point. And Dave, I, I missed it if you said this. The Actually, I've heard some institutions saying just avoid nebulizers uh, if you can and just, just use inhalers, use nasal cannula so you're not doing the aerosolizing procedures. Yeah, I think definitely thinking about it a little bit more. I think we throw nebulizers on and a lot of people are feeling short of breath and for proven patients using spacers, if you can do it that way. And then for patients who don't really need them, you know, uh, don't have some underlying indication or a lot of wheezing or things like that, just trying to avoid them altogether is best. Just to amplify that, my, my expert opinion would be to avoid uh, using high flow nasal cannula or, or non-invasive positive pressure unless you have highly individualized reasons. There's there's some clear evidence that this is risky to staff, uh, and especially with limited PPE and using non-positive pressure rooms to house some of these patients, I think we have to be really careful about keeping everybody healthy. Um, one trend that I've noticed, which is very concerning to me, and this is, again, caveat expert opinion, we look at the data about mortality rate by age, and you know, for those of us who are you know, in our 30s, that's a reassuring number. It's like 0.2% mortality. But the data that we're seeing about healthcare workers may be higher than that. And there's some, there's some inkling of, of evidence here that maybe the inoculum dose that we receive if we're intubating patients or if we're in the room with them during aerosolizing procedures makes our risk higher. And so I would, be, I would encourage listeners to be extremely cautious, even if you are not in a high-risk bucket otherwise, because it's possible that you're being exposed to more virus than people in the community, and that may place you at higher risk. Okay, my wife is not allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Carolina, were you going to add something? Um, listening to Dave talking about using the spacers and the inhalers just really took me back to the residency days of listening to the great Lenny Feldman talk about high value care and advocate for using inhalers and spacers for every patient who is able to do so. So um, just a little you know, reminder of um, or a connection to our best practices, whether this is um, within or um, outside the times of COVID. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Inhaler and spacer is the way to go. Uh, it's good. It's good outpatient medicine, right? And it's also good in the ICU now. Okay, so I want to do quickly kind of a, a end of session lightning round, kind of around the horn, where each person goes around to answer a couple of big questions. One thing, if you could talk about what's one thing that surprised you about the ep- epidemic, or are there any specific inside stories or take home points or any comments that you really think should be said to our listeners? Um, Nick, why, why don't we, we start with you if that's okay? Sure. So I've been tremendously impressed by the degree of innovation that's taking place. A um, couple of things that have been thought up by some brilliant colleagues in the last few days even are things like you can move the IV pumps out of the IV room into the hall. And therefore, the nurse doesn't have to gown up every time they have to hang a new bag of um, antibiotic or a new thing of propofol. Um, another similar, on a similar note, you can actually take the brains, the control panel on the top of the ventilator off 
on some units and put that in the hallway. So we can adjust the ventilator without going in the room. Um, people are also doing, and so and actually, and, and the advantage of this is huge, right? It conserves PPE, it reduces risk, and it's much more time efficient because you don't have to spend all that time donning and doffing PPE each time. Um, so that's really exciting. Another place that I've been really surprised and inspired is seeing how supportive other people have been. And so, you know, for example, like medical students, right, have set up these forums where they, they can help people who need help with childcare, with getting groceries, with other like life things. Um, and that's really cool. Um, you know, congratulations on match day. You know, this is really exciting that you guys are doing this, uh, even when you could be taking the time off. I will say that as somebody who's tried really hard to not scut out med students over the years, you've set your cause back 50 years. <laughs> I just got an email today from a group of medical students that I just, that almost made me tear up because they're offering to make face shields. They're like, we have the schematics oh, wow. here. They are. We're happy to make them for you. Just let us know what you need. Like oh. just out of the clear blue. It's, it's, I agree. It's been amazing. Yeah. There was, oh I was telling you guys before that uh, a, a family friend, a retired nurse was like, I'm, I'm making face masks that are washable and reusable and I'm sending them out to healthcare workers and offered to send, send me one. So I have that coming. Oh my gosh. We, I think we have medical students and um, university students who have been volunteering, volunteering to perform childcare duties for medical professionals who need to be called in for duty. So to talk about working outside of your range of expertise. <laughs> They've done pediatrics. Yeah. <laughs> Sherilyn, what, how about you? Anything that surprised you about the ad- epidemic or other insights and stories? Sure. I mean, every, every day is surprising. <laughs> I feel like it's a, it's a, uh, it's a very, it's a very crazy ride. Um, really the most surprising thing is what we have been able to accomplish with a common mission. Um, it really blows me away. Again, everything from how the hospitals have changed their daily operations to how um, to how the public message has been able to percolate, I think, from the initial waves of denial to um, a, a sea change in the way that people live their lives, um, a change I kind of alluded to folks volunteering to work outside of their um, outside of their field, the way that um, our diagnostic labs have completely retooled what they're doing the way in which research scientists have also um, have also uh, sacrificed uh, their lab mission for a couple of weeks as they also shut down. And some of those scientists have volunteered to do things like man the RNA extraction um, uh, stations at the lab so that the diagnostic labs can be running 24-7, you know, to do those really, um, those uh, very detail-oriented tasks, um, RNA extraction and um, and then running the um, the PCR thermocyclers, believe it or not, there's a process in which um, just to increase capacity, uh, those uh, skilled individuals were able to go through a two-day training uh, to volunteer and learn how to how to run the COVID-19 tests. So just in the way in which things have profoundly changed, people have, with the right sort of encouragement from leadership, people have come together in an incredible way, um, and. A, fields are coming together um, and I hope advances are being made so that hopefully we can avert the worst of this epidemic, change the shape of the curve and um, um, hopefully and save some lives. Dave? 
Uh, yeah, it certainly will echo uh, everything that uh, Carolina and Nick were saying about the innovation, you know, seeing things roll out that would have taken years, like telehealth, you know, sort of sweeping through our clinics. And, and then the amount of cooperation and congeniality, I think, at a time when uh, tension is running very high in the hospital, I've never seen sort of so many people from so many different either specialties or, or different parts of the staff getting along and, and really just working through problems together. Uh, and then one thing I guess is surprising uh, or an insight a little bit, and maybe I'm oversharing here, but it, it's just how sometimes with everything that's going on, you know, you're affected yourself by by sort of a, a little bit of the anxiety of what's happening. You know, I, the other day I was going into a patient's room. I was a situation where I didn't think I needed N95 uh, and you're trying to preserve PPE. And then somebody said, stopped me and said, oh, you really need an N95. You don't want to get sick. And for a second... I, I almost took it. I was like, well, I don't want to get sick, but you know, you're, you're thinking through things and it's almost impossible to, to block everything out. And so then just sort of talking through with people and focusing in on what you have to do. But I, I think it's going to happen to everybody as they're caring for people that, you know, this is an unprecedented sort of event in the hospital and being an open and honest about that with everybody on the teams as you go through and talk to them has just been really helpful for, for getting through those uh, moments of anxiety that certainly come up during the day. Which is true. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, kind of thinking uh, a little bit outside of the hospital, I think one thing that's been uh, surprising to me and interest endlessly fascinating is how, um, you know, different countries have responded and managed uh, this pandemic and how much of that is kind of affected by their social and political culture. Um, you know, as we're kind of figuring out the medical management and, you know, as mentioned earlier, a lot of medical management is, you know, the management of the ARDS, things that we already kind of um, have uh, figured out somewhat. Uh, but what really makes this a manageable or unmanageable situation uh, seems to be kind of these larger policy questions as we're seeing in the United States. So I want to ask the next question and uh, maybe we can just, we can quickly go around the horn here, but I am in my community, I think all of you all live in places where it's hit sooner and probably you had these social distancing measures put in place earlier, but I'm just starting to get some nerves about like, you know, all the food delivery services are booked up for seven, 10 days in advance. And I have four kids that just eat constantly throughout the day. And I don't want to be going into grocery stores right now. And it's just been, you know, that's just adding this whole layer of anxiety to this and, and wondering, you know, how, how big this surge is going to get. And did we, did we put all these measures in place in time? So I, I just have been feeling, you know, sleep hasn't been great. And I am definitely worried about like, uh, why are, why am I getting updates uh, for, or hearing about there's only this many ventilators and people kind of doing the math about all that stuff, like when PPE will run out. So, you know, these are things that uh, I don't have any solutions. I just uh, want to commiserate with you all about them. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing. I, you know, sometimes I find that in the hospital or in the ICU is the most calm I am during the day because it's, again, controlled chaos. You you have everything you need. And then when I'm back home listening to the news or things like that is when uh, when all of this sort of happens. Uh, yeah, I, it, it certainly can be nerve wracking, although seeing the the way people are dedicating to the measures and then uh, trying to do little things has sort of helped me out. Like I keep trying to order from local restaurants. I really like that. I can't just walk by and populate anymore. And I feel kind of good about that. <laughs> Nick. Yeah. It's, I think one of the biggest challenges about this is that as a ICU doctor, I'm used to 
shifts ending and putting down a lot of that stress and going home. And this is an unusual situation because instead of the acute stress that accompanies a difficult procedure or a long night, this is the chronic stress of dealing with a pandemic. You know, we're living at what's likely a singular moment in history that we're going to tell our grandkids about, and we're on the front lines of it. And it's very strange to have that reality sort of surround you all the time. You know, there's just surreal moments. I mean, Seattle has got some weirdos, admittedly, but when you go when you go to the grocery store and there's people walking around wearing um, like dishwashing gloves around the store, it's just it's really hard <laughs> to remember like what planet is this? And I, you know, I just I, I try to I just try to remind myself like uh, I'm I'm here to wear masks, not tinfoil hats. Like there's so many things that you can worry about in your life outside of work, you know, but the precautions that we, that we take, like washing our hands, ditching the scrubs in the garage or at the, at, at the cash like hospital, those are good precautions. Um, and personally, I find that the thing that's been best for me is just to play with my kids. My kids are two months and two years, so they are not worried about COVID-19 and that's been a good way to disconnect from this. Yeah, I think... Like I make the joke, except it's not a joke that 90% of my job is actually just saying something in a reassuring tone of voice. And like, that's, that's most of primary care and saying, this will get better. And most of the time you're right. And then patients will love you. And then there's the the occasional time when you're wrong and then they don't like you as much. But like with this, just, you you just don't have the numbers behind you. And it's, for me, the thing that's been, I think the most exhausting is, is, you know, I think for all of us is probably sort of the not knowing how long will this go on for? How scared should I be? All these intangibles that you just don't really feel, at least I don't feel equipped to answer and sort of we're doing the best we can it's a nice thing to say and it's the truth, but sometimes it's not wholly satisfying. So I think probably one of the things that's the most of a strain, I think on a lot of us is the fact that you just, you just don't know and you don't even have the numbers behind you to kind of even back you up. Right. And I, I think, you know, we're also as internists, responsible people, we're planners. And so, you know, my wife and I have had conversations with friends and family, like the what if conversations we've updated our will, you know, it's, right. I mean, these are things that as responsible adults who are dealing with high risk patients, we, we should do. Um, but it's it's very distressing to think through these things, to think about, you know, what would happen if I was on a ventilator, if I was critically ill. And I think it, it kind of cuts both ways. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of support, um, but I think it's also, you know, one thing that's surprising is thinking about the uh, stigma against healthcare workers and, you know, being conscious of that not getting out of hand. You know, I know on the one hand, a lot of people are making a lot of tough decisions about, you know, being around, you know, take care of COVID patients and then being around their families, their parents, you know, um, at the same time, you know, I, I have housemates, you know, we've had a lot of uh, kind of difficult conversations about, you know, where, you know, what, what these boundaries should be and what, you know, do they feel uncomfortable me just being in the house? Um, you know, I was talking to a, a colleague the other day and, you know, they had recently been dating someone, you know, it's been going really well. And now that person has been kind of afraid of being with them and, you know, and continuing to, to be with them because, uh, you know, because they're doctor taking care of COVID patients. So um, it's, it's the extra social element of it uh, uh, definitely adds to a lot of uh, psychosocial burden, I think, for all, all of us. Wow, it's like everyone is just coming into coming into our world since we I did actually think about uh, lower key epidemics, um, you know, higher and lower key epidemics, issues of contagion um, all the time. So <laughs> that low level of uh, that low level but ever present uh, element of stress, Nick. I think you've uh, put your finger on uh, why <laughs> uh, 
on, uh, on, on some of my life stress. <laughs> well, I think we probably have to wrap up here with some plugs if, if any of y'all have plugs. So we can go around uh, at least clockwise on my screen. So Nick, Dave, Francisco, and Carolina in that order. I'd like to plug the amazing work done by some of my friends and colleagues um, at Harborview and UW. Um, the, you know, some of the people like Tony Back and Randy Curtis have put together this amazing COVID ready communications guide. Essentially what it is, is it's scripted exchanges. Like if a patient or a family member asks you a really hard question, here are some potential responses. I think, you know, in addition to brushing up on your event management and, and everything else, this is well worth spending a few minutes reading. Um, you know, I, I, I contributed very little to this uh, as a disclosure, but these people are really, really good at doing difficult communications and they've written it down. So now we can all benefit from their, uh, their expertise. Uh, yeah, the one plug I have is I was on a podcast recently with um, the Cardio Nerds podcast and less about the one I was on, but more they've been doing a whole series, you know, answering some of the questions that have been coming up about cardiac implications of, uh, of COVID which a lot of questions are coming up about this. And I think they have a five or six episode series coming. And so far all the content has been fantastic. Uh, I just, I'm going to go ahead and plug uh, some of the healthcare workers that uh, are sometimes gone, go unnoticed, you know, the facilities services workers, the food service workers, the patient care assistants who've really stepped up to the plate yeah. in this uh, pandemic. And, uh, and, you know, I think really dis uh, deserve our respect and our gratitude. Absolutely. And on my side, um, I would plug a resource that has been super helpful for us as well as for communicating with um, some clinician colleagues across the country and abroad. Um, it's the University of Washington Medicine COVID-19 resource site. Um, I believe it will be linked, but you can also use an internet browser, search for that. Um, it is constantly updated with resources from um, patient care to PPE to um, uh, post-acute long-term care operations facilities. They're adding to it every day um, and has a lot of amazing resources. And then um, to, I know that there are many learners in our, um, in um, the Curbsiders audience. And I wanted to put a plug out there for all of the learners. I know that some of you have been uh, probably feeling shut out of what's going on because rotations, some rota a lot of rotations have been canceled. It can be hard to find a place for yourself as hospitals and systems and universities are struggling to find a place for everybody right now. I just want you all to know that um, I am so proud of you. Um, you're part of this grand tradition um, of, uh, of professionals who are addressing, you know, whether it's epidemics, uh, whether it was the plague or the flu of 1918, um, taking care of uh, acutely ill patients, taking care of chronically ill patients. Um, take this time if you're stuck at home to just read up everything you can, learn everything you can, reach out, um, go on med Twitter. Um, and our community is here to embrace you with open arms. Um, and I know that it's a really hard time um, during this time of tumult, um, but it'll be one that you know we surely will all remember. Okay. And I think, uh, Nick, you, you didn't want to, you were shy about plugging your own site, but uh, this, this uh, one pager ICU.com is, is, this is where you're constantly updating that one page thing that you put out on Twitter that went viral. Is that correct? 
That's right. And there is some non-COVID stuff there, too, for those of us who still care about non-COVID teaching stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who cares about that? Well, that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Weeks later. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. I really appreciate your time. And uh, that that's it. We got we we've got to we've got to get going. We got to let you get back to your evening. So thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks Great so time much. with y'all. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Perfect. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers, Justin Burke, uh, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbage Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Justin Lee Burke. And I'd also like to thank Stuart for composing our theme music and Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and goodbye.